be very cautious of trying to max anything. Because trying to max any variable has a way, it's like the Goodhart's law kind of thing, right? Like when you try to overdo one particular, you make one number go up, you will compromise some other thing along the way that spoils the whole thing. If you can laugh while you are in the struggle between cosmic challenges, then there is, that's the path of like freedom and, and peace and joy, hopefully. Hello, and welcome back to Eclectic Spacewalk. I'm your host, Nicholas McKay. Today on Conversations, we are pleased to be joined by Visa Khan Verasami. Visa is the author of two ebooks, Friendly Ambitious Nerds and Introspect. He is also better known as the unofficial godfather of Twitter. Now, Visa is a prolific creative that has an infectious curiosity in many domains of knowledge, from being a bibliophile with his love for books or a, quote, switchboard for earnest nerds, there is something for everyone to learn from Visa. We think you are really going to enjoy this one. Now, before we play the episode, I would ask you to like this video and subscribe to the channel. It really helps us grow and reach more people, as well as continue to have more interesting discussions with eclectic guests. Also, tell us in the comments what your favorite part of the talk was and who we should invite on next. Now, on to the discussion. First off, let's let's talk about your curiosity journey. Um, I've read a lot of your stuff, uh, the library ethos and kind of how you started off in libraries and then also the internet kind of just hit you over the head with its possibilities. Um, uh, kind of talk us how you were first curious and then how you kind of um, grew into that curiosity as you grew older. You know, it's interesting. I, I feel like I, so I can get kind of meta about this really quickly because I, never really had a very good explanation until very recently so like okay. i used to just be like okay when i was a kid i read a lot of books i like reading books but like why <laughs> right <laughs> and um you know i it only very recently kind of clicked for me that mm -hmm. when i was very young i was raised by largely by a domestic helper so both my parents okay, were yeah. very busy both my parents were very busy running their family business so i was very i was very attached to our helper and then she left and I think that was a very uh like traumatic incident for me as a kid, like to be sudden to have that the person that you're most close to kind of disappear on you. And I think that catalyzed my curiosity a lot. Like I wanted mm -hmm. to, I found myself drawn to reading about just and a, a lot of like cataclysmic things. I was reading about like uh, you know, ancient collapse of civilizations and uh like earthquakes and and you know the dinosaurs and medias and and I just I it's interesting to me now to have this additional layer of complexity about inquiry. And I mean mm. I think I would have been I so you, you can't know the counterfactuals, right? So if, if I wasn't raised by a helper, would that mean I wouldn't be interested in reading books? Sure. I don't think it's that black and white. It's probably just additional factors. But it's so it's so interesting and strange that you can I'm so I'm 32 years old this year. And I mean, I, I knew those, I knew details about like my early childhood all my life, but I only just kind of pieced it together. And suddenly a lot of things made more sense. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I've always been obsessed with understanding like civilizational collapse and, and um, you know, I, I guess I would say I would describe it as like getting rug pulled 
right? Like mm. so having your social having your social reality kind of pulled out from underneath you. So one of the things that I so I'm Singaporean and in like World War II, Singapore was occupied by the Japanese. Mm-hmm. And I never understood when I was a kid how come I seemed so troubled by it, but my peers weren't. Like my friends were like, uh-huh. oh yeah, whatever, it's it's history. It's not a big this like who cares? It's just facts and figures. And I'm like, no, like it's it's life. Like everything that we know can be changed in an instant. Isn't that shocking? Isn't that horrifying? And they're like, eh, let's go recess, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, so now it, through, th- through this narrative of, oh, I had endured something that was like a rug pull of my own when I was very mm-hmm. young. And since then, I guess I've been extra sensitive to how that plays out in other domains. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I've always wanted to understand people. I've always wanted to understand you know, how things work, what's going on in the world. Like, just, I needed, I always wanted things to make sense. Right. And yeah, so I've just always been, and, I've, and I guess I've also always wanted a sense of belonging. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I love my parents. It's not like I was from like an abusive childhood or whatever, but like we were always kind of distant. We didn't really get along super well. And so I was always hungry for like community with fellow nerds. And, and you know, like I'm a minority where I'm from. And I was very drawn to like forum culture, like video game forum stuff. And yeah, so I've just always had that part of me be active as long as I can remember. And so I yeah. I, I, I spent so much time on internet forums in retrospect that these days, sometimes when somebody asks me something like, oh, how do, how do I get good at like posting? Oh, right. I can give some, I can give some advice, but like, that you know to be perfectly honest there's like no substitute for just putting in the hours for years and years and like i wonder if it's a bit dishonest Mm. to even offer any suggestions if they don't have that kind of background Mm. but then again i'm thinking like you know so i was was, um, watching a fitness influencer on youtube and she's like super flexible and i'm like how do you get that flexible and and, like (laughs) she was a child she was like a gymnast at like three or something and then she, I mean, and then she stopped as a teenager. But then, you know, you, there are some things that if you pick it up from a very, very young age, you just kind of have that, 100%. you know, the muscle memory or whatever. Yep. And yeah, I'm like, oh, I, I'm, I'm never gonna be as flexible as her, like ever. I can try my best, but like she will always be ahead of me because she has that background and she's continuing to work on it. Mm-hmm. But that's fine, you know. Like everybody specializes in different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So wait, so before we get, I, I, cause that's an interesting kind of thing. How do you kind of deal with running up against that reality? Um, because I think that is a very interesting thing of like growth and maturity, et cetera, is, mm-hmm. um, cause when I was growing up, the biggest thing that was always like pushed into me is, you know, specialize, uh, you know, th- th- be, be interested in one thing. And I always thought that that was so one dimensional, so narrow. Yeah. And I was always kind of into complexity and all these other things, but how do you kind of deal with that reality before we let's get deep right right into it i mean we'll talk about books we'll talk about the internet but how do you deal with the reality of kind of understanding who you are uh as a person uh within society within history uh with relationships how do you think about that yeah so i mean i i read a lot very early on and so i i got exposed to a lot of different perspectives Mm -hmm. and even just being raised in singapore is like a very diverse uh just you know many different religions many different ethnicities mm-hmm. different just being in between east and west you just kind of always see multiple perspectives yeah. and like you know growing up watching stuff on tv it's like you watch a little bit of like anime and then there would be like hollywood movies and like bollywood movies like you just see all kinds of different wow. things and 
I mean, that was always just very natural for me. I didn't even think of it as anything unusual or special until I encountered people who were like raised in quote unquote monocultures. Mm-hmm. And um, so how do I think about all of that? It's like, well, I so in my reading, I found that there are many different ways that people have succeeded at many different domains. So I, I never bought into the idea that, oh, there's like, one answer for mm-hmm. everyone right so it's mm-hmm. obvious that different people have different specializations like there are some people who you know they are very precise and methodical about how they do something and they get very very good at that and then there's some people who are like chaotic all over the place and then they get yeah. very good at that so um it became pretty apparent to me that uh you should i mean so the cliche phrases are things like much to the beat of your own drum right like so you should find what your natural inclinations are and what like your instinct is and and lean into that and double down on that. So, you know, like even on Twitter, for example, uh, Ayla, for example, she she's mm-hmm. excellent at coming up with polls. Right. And I I can come up with polls like if I want to, but when I watch someone like her do what she does, I'm like, oh, I I will never be able to keep up with that because she must be thinking about polls in her sleep or right. in the shower or whatever and i i have to <laughs> be like hmm what would a good poll be right whereas for me the things that come very naturally for me is the things that i do so i quote tweet stuff i repost i re- reshare and again sometimes people ask me like how do i be more like you on that front and i kind of want to say it like you shouldn't though i mean you can try i can, t- <laughs> you I, can, I try. can tell you can try i can tell you i can tell you how i do it sort of but like really the thing that you should figure out is what you are you know, instinctively like snap quick, snap judgment quick at because that's the thing that will be like your competitive advantage or whatever. Like mm. the, the thing that gives you your voice, the thing that makes you, I, I think it's like a Shakira interview where she said something like she was in a choir and like she got like asked to leave the choir because she just, her voice was too weird. But, like you have to sing okay. a certain way to yeah, fit yeah. in with the choir and she just couldn't. And like, yeah, everyone ultimately, you know, ends up do. I mean, not everyone. I guess everyone who pursues some kind of um public facing or, you know, like like the way that you are <laughs> ends up being, it comes out in whatever you do anyway. Mm-hmm, so you might mm-hmm. as well support it rather than resist it. Yeah. As far as possible. That's a good point. Um, so le- I want to give you a quote uh, that you wrote. What magical, intoxicating, mind-altering things books mm-hmm. are. Little packages of paper full of ordered squiggles, messages from one mind to another, sometimes across vast distances of time and space. Glorious mm-hmm. prose, Visa. Uh, well done. Um, but I will have to um, ask you a little bit further. Like, I mean, do you remember kind of maybe one book that really stood out to you maybe growing up and then what's kind of a book recently that's really, you know, captivated you or ensnared you into its grasp? <laughs> I mean, so many, I, I almost, right. yeah. So sim- like similarly, when people ask me about books, I'm always like, it's all of them, you know, yeah. every book, <laughs> My entire every, library. Every, every book is enriched by every other book that you read, sure. right? Cause it's every, but, uh, I mean, you know, then people like just answer the question. Question, dude. I'm like, well, no, um, we can we I, can wax poetically, Visa. We're here for that yeah. too. <laughs> I remember um, there are a few different books that that I I remember being kind of swept up in. Um, one was uh, the duck is rising. It's like a it's like a five five or six part like fantasy. It's kind of it's kind of like a young adult fantasy ish 
sort of like a grimmer, I don't know if I would say it's Harry Potter-esque, but it's like okay. um that kind of thing. You know, it's like a like a boy and his friends and they have to like save the world in some way. Like, I can't remember the specifics of the plot. Like they had to collect like um circles. Mm-hmm. It's some kind of like a it's like a remix with like um King Arthur kind of like there's a there's a Merlin character, but he's and he's actually Merlin, but you don't quite realize it until later on. He's like his name is like ah. Merriman Leon, that kind of thing. So it's it's very like, ooh, it's like you're reading it and it, it kind of feels like it's written in an ordinary life sort of setting, and then it gets mystical halfway. Mm-hmm. Uh the Golden Compass, that's another book that's kind of like okay. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a whole bunch though. I I feel like when I start listing out like two or three, I'm like, wait, there's like fifty more because <laughs> it's because it's, it's all the different books in all the different domains. Uh, when I was a teenager, one of my friends lent me this very very weird book called um Satan Burger, Satan Burger, where like Satan right. is running a burger joint, and it's just <laughs> just su- super strange. So su- I mean, I think now if you saw it today, it doesn't feel that weird because it's kind of like extremely online absurdist sort of humor mm, but when okay. i was like when i was like 12 or 11 and i read that i was like whoa this is so different than everything else i've ever read it's so yeah. chaotic and and crazy uh biographies and i remember reading charles Sag- carl, charles. carl <laughs> sagan's biography when i was in the military and uh, i was just so struck by what a meaningful and consequential life he had lived, right. you know, kind of just impacting other people. And I'm, yeah, I think that was very much one of the direct influences on like friendly ambitiousness, like the idea of yep. thinking of, of kind of just being a positive influence about curiosity and sharing of knowledge and all of those things. So there's that. And yeah, I can go on and on. There's so many. <laughs> <laughs> Is there one like right now that you're just kind of, uh, Maybe working through or just just finished recently or something. Yeah, I'm I'm always reading like multiple. So currently, I'm reading um Montaigne's essays. That's okay. One. It's classic, solid. You know, you, you read it and it's like, oh, this this guy was writing like 500 years ago, and it sounds so contemporary and and better than you know like. So again, it, it, I I don't think it diminishes anybody's Substack to say that Montaigne's essays. If they were on Substack today, you'd be like, "Holy shit, this is the best Substack!" Yeah, right? Right, so, right. and like, yeah, it does. It's it's just he he was so good at at tending to the nuances of his experience, and uh, so that's one. Another, I'm also reading um Frank, I can't get his last name right. Caporian, Capor. The, the books I thought the books called the Silk Roads. Caporian. Ah, is it by like a historian or something? Because I remember seeing it, it is a historian. Years ago. Yeah, a big one. It's got a gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous cover. Yep. That's, yep. Why, that's I know partially, exactly partially why I bought it. It's like a purple <laughs> cover. Peter Franco Pan. That's his yeah, name. Yeah, there Peter you go. Franco. There you go. There you go. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's, uh, you know, and I, I wouldn't say it's like groundbreakingly shocking. Or, I mean, it's like it's nothing tremendously new, but it's like, it's, it's very well laid out. It's got a lot mm-hmm. of interest, interesting detail and, mm-hmm. It's just quite, I think, um, exhilarating to be brought on a journey by someone who really knows their stuff and they're guiding mm-hmm. you through it, through like history, like, and you think about periods of time, you think about space, right? How things have changed, how things are still the same, mm-hmm. and yeah, so that's been riveting. Uh, another thing that I was reading a while ago, I haven't picked it up again, but um, Hyperion by Dan Simmons. Okay. So that's uh, like, sci-fi, sci-fi, right? Sci-fi, yeah. And yeah. the very cool thing is. There are like I think six or seven main characters, and they are all on like this 
plan like a space road trip together and they okay. each tell each other their stories. And so I'm only a hundred pages in, so I've read like two and a half. So like of each crew, crew I'm gonna say crew member, although I don't think they're really crew, but like, like each member of this um squad, right? Uh they all don't really know each other and they all have different backgrounds. And as each of them tells a story of their life, it's a different genre. So the mm. first story is like by um like some religious guy, some explorer or something. And his story follows the path of uh of like a survival log, you know, like day one, this thing happened. Day two, we found the settlement. Day three, I have horrible diarrhea. <laughs> day five. And it's like this this suspense mystery, what's going on? He's yeah. found some weird phenomenon. And from his point of view, from his telling of the story, he doesn't know what's happening yet. So you're kind of piecing it together. And oh, then very cool. Okay. And then you, you finish that. That's like 60, 70 pages, and it's a full kind of self-contained story. And then it's the next guy. Then it's a bit of, oh, you know, we had lunch or whatever. We looked at each other. We we're going, wondering what's going on. And then the second guy starts telling his story, and he was like a soldier. And it's like, this is like a space marine kind of um, historical tr- time travel kind of right. tale. And it's like, I think all the six or seven stories have like, common themes or like this some alien element some time travel thing i don't know specifics yet but it is, i am excited to read the rest of it it feels like and i and i found out later on while looking at wikipedia or something that apparently this follows the same convention as um the canterbury tales which is like oh an old, okay like, yeah 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 also era yep. thing which yep. you know everyone like you've heard of it but i'm guessing you probably haven't read it like most i think people like, haven't read it i think i've read two of the things in middle school maybe maybe yeah. you know like, yeah it's it's one of those like oh it's a classic and it's old and it's probably boring but you know like it's a respected and and now i am more curious to read the classic because ah. i'm finding out that hyperion is kind of like a modern version of that it's like imagine you watch Lion King and then people are like, oh, Lion King, it's 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 like Hamlet, but in cartoon lions. And you're like, oh, <laughs> right, 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 right. I guess I should check out Hamlet now. And then you go and watch <laughs> Hamlet, you're like, oh, that's the reference here and there. Yep, and so that's yep. what I mean when I say like every book kind of you know enriches every other book because you just appreciate everything so much more when you see the conventions and you see where people got their ideas from and what they're remixing. And you know, a lot of books remix like the Bible, right? And, oh, hundred percent mythologies and all of those things. So it's, yeah, it's like you know, and I, I feel like they can't literally quote tweet stuff in books, but they do it by referencing and remixing and, and you know, like if you can spot the references, that's like, it's a reward to the people who read, even though it's a completely different book. Right. Like, hey, I noticed that over there. Well, yeah. can we maybe go more into that? You brought up a great point is remixing. And I know we share mm-hmm. uh, a kind of deep love for those kind of uh, ideas. And for anyone not familiar, there was a I'm pretty sure a documentary, what, in the mm-hmm. 2010s, remix of Manifesto, talking about Girl Talk, the uh, band that basically, or a guy, producer, that all he uses is really samples from other music. But obviously, writing of the greats has been a remix. So, like, how do you kind of think about that? What are you maybe trying to remix now? What are some ideas? Um, we don't have to get too deep because obviously we'll we'll kind of get it more into the the memes and et cetera. But I mean, how do you think uh, generally about remixing stuff uh, using others? And what what is that famous Picasso quote or something? Uh, you know, good artists like come up with their own stuff. Great artists steal, you know, or something mm-hmm. uh, from others. So what what how do you, how are you how do you think about that? Yeah, so there's this video on YouTube by Kirby Ferguson, and it's called "Everything Is a Remix." Ah, okay. and. and and uh, watching that video changed my life. It really, it eliminated like 95, 98% of my creative anxiety. 
Because the idea is that, so even if you don't believe like the strong form of the thesis, so the strong form of the thesis is like everything is literally a remix. Like you cannot think original thoughts. You only think in remix. Like some people are like, yeah. that's a bit extreme. I don't think that's entirely true. But then even if you don't believe in the first part, like it's true that everything that you perceive, right, you will think of it in terms of the things that you already know. So even if nobody told you that Alien was pitched and conceived of as Jaws in space. If you had watched Jaws before and then you watch Alien, you'd be like, oh shit, this is kind of like Jaws, even though it, you know, it's so we we interpret reality in terms of stuff we already know. So in that sense, nothing can truly be like inconceivably um like nothing can be truly completely original in the sense that its origin is completely divorced from all of human creation mm, right, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, so even mm-hmm. if something is like completely different than everything you've seen before you will your brain will still be like oh it's not like those other things and so the distance between what you know and what this how this thing is violating your expectations and assumptions about what a movie is supposed to be like or what a song is supposed to be like it is a remix in that sense right it's like a mm-hmm. negative remix and so once you see it in that way you realize oh shit that means that and and just to kind of go over the basics so the idea is you know all learning begins with imitation right every child speaks learns language by copying what its parents are saying or whatever and a lot of great creators they start out doing mimicry of other people so like the beatles used to be a cover band right um sony used to be a radio repair shop like you learn the technical way of doing things by mimicking your predecessors and what came before and then what you do is you as you develop the skill of making the copies you experiment you, you might do it by accident or you might do it on purpose you you, you know you, you make it a bit faster a bit slower bigger smaller zoom in zoom out and like you start to get a sense of all the variables and you have taste you like i like mm-hmm. this more when it's like that i like it more when it's like that and since there's no way to technically make something that isn't derivative the best we can do is make as interesting mixes as we possibly can. So mm. when we think we are being completely original and avoiding influences, we're just kind of being led by our subconscious influences. And we, and that that will be derivative in ways we don't realize. And so you, you try and write a song and you think that you wrote it yourself. And then like a year later, you find out, oh, wait, that's very, very similar to like something I heard when I was a kid. So you might so you'll have better odds of coming across as fresh and innovative by deliberately seeking out different material than you'd normally listen to and kind of exposing yourself to a wider range of influences. And then you try and piece together interesting mixes based on what you like. And yeah, so it's it's really as simple as follow your nose, like what you like, try and explain to yourself why you like what you like. Like argue with yourself about it, argue with your friends about it. Like, no, this is good because of that. And they're like, well, you know, I feel that it's a bit too slow. I feel that it's a bit too X, Y, Z. And the more rigorous you are about this process and the more prolific you are in making stuff and examining the stuff that you've made to see what you like and what you don't like, you just kind of iterate on that process long mm-hmm. enough. And like, if you do this for like, 30 years, you start, people start calling you a genius because you have, you've been through all the iterations and you know what's fresh and what's not. Yeah. It's okay. just like, I find it so exciting. Like it's, it's actually so simple, right? You just need to repeat it. 
Well, and then also, I think I've taken some other things from you, uh, like broadening your time horizon, you know, lengthening mm -hmm. it in terms of like, okay, well, are you really playing a long game? Uh, what are you really kind of wanting out of this? And I that kind of segues into a nice thing that I wanted to talk to you about that I don't think I've... I've, I've heard you talk about it enough times that I know that I want to talk to you about it, but I, I haven't heard really answers. So hopefully this is uh, a, a good time to ask is how do you kind of ground yourself with your life and stuff? Because you are prolific on Twitter and have kind of this notoriety and et cetera. But then as well, like you talk about how important your wife is and how, you, you know, meeting her uh, at a, in a time of life, maybe most people wouldn't have, you know, settled down or whatever word you want to call it, you know, phrase. But like, how do you kind of, you know, stay grounded at home? How does your wife keep you grounded and not like, okay, you know, this internet celebrity visa is, is here all the time, you know? And so I'm trying to see like, how do you ground yourself? How do you really, you know, think about that when you're off Twitter, even though I know it's not all the time or, you know, et cetera, but what are your thoughts on that? Right. Well, I guess I would start by saying that I don't think I'm an, a very well-grounded person. I try to, okay. but I don't. I, I I would I would kind of set expectations by like I can't remember who it was who said like uh some creative. I think I, I mean obviously as a creative, but I mean <laughs> maybe at this point I'm like making it up in my head. But like I have this mental image of a creative. Maybe it's a musician or a, an author or some, and someone's like. I don't know why people expect me to be like exciting and interesting in interviews. Like my work is the most exciting and interesting <laughs> thing about me. And the rest of the, I'm just sitting at home with my like pen and paper. Oh, I think Slash, Slash from Guns N' Roses, the guitarist. Oh, He's like, yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. People asking him like, what's your morning routine? He's like, I don't know. I wake up, I have coffee, I take a shit, like <laughs> play guitar a little bit. Like, there's, there's, like people seem to expect that, oh, like, and I, there's this great essay by... Daniel Chambliss titled The Mundanity of Excellence. And he was he okay. his research was on like swimmers, like um people who so he would study swimmers from like state level, national level, Olympic, and like his findings like it's just very boring. Like people just wake up early in the morning to go swimming every day, and it's like there's nothing there's, there's no yeah, there's <laughs> it's discipline, yeah. And they they and they actually enjoy swimming, right? So again, right, like, this goes back right. to us saying like um with Ala's polls or whatever, right? Like they find the thing that they like and they just do it and they do and and like the better ones get mindful about it and they have like these stepwise qualitative improvements. So that's that's the interesting part. But the, almost like the dog that didn't bark sort of interestingness is that there's nothing like exceptionally, strangely deviant about them. They just, the, the, the work is the thing that they do. Mm -hmm. So similarly for me, it's like, yeah, I, I write a lot. I space out. I'm doing, like, I'll be sitting on my sofa and just staring into space. And like, it's, I, I guess I'm, I'm sort of writing in my head. Like I'm just kind mm -hmm. of juggling ideas and stuff. And yeah, it's it's not that exciting. I mean, it's exciting to me, but it's not exciting to watch. It's like you know, right? Um, regarding grounding in like personal, like you know, um, uh, so my wife knows who she married. You know, she 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 knows me <laughs> from from a young age. She knows that I'm this very head in the clouds kind of abstract um dreamer. Um, it is a bit of a. I don't know if I would say it's a it's an strange quirk that we ended up together so early and so young and we mm -hmm. married so young because right. um part of it was like well we had good chemistry from a young age i guess uh we did separate for a while when we were teenagers which is like and then it's like 
very normal teenage yeah. thing to do. But then we got back together a couple of years later. And like her parents didn't approve of our relationship. And neither of us thought that was cool. So like, <laughs> like uh, we we are both strangely stubborn in that way. Like um it, it's fun it's funny, it's almost like a you know, this I think there's a Ugwe quote from Kung Fu Panda. Oh yeah, yeah. Where yeah he's yeah. like he's like um one often meets their destiny on the path they take to avoid it. Right. So it's like her parents didn't want us to be together because we were young and we we're like different ethnicities and all that. And um if they had not disapproved, we might have just run our course and like, you know, eventually you have some squabble and be like, you know what, it's not working out, bye. But like her parents' um, disapproval, I think, made us want to like make it work somehow. So I think we were much more um, motivated to make our relationship work, which I think is not as common as, again, I don't know, I don't want to be prescriptive about this, but you know, I would say that we are happy. Mm-hmm. And it does seem again, I want to be very careful with this because different people people's relationships are so different and they all need to hear different things based on what they're going through. But like broad at the broadest, broadest level, it does feel like um a lot of people get swept up in like there's so many options. And so like if the person uh-huh. I'm currently dating doesn't seem great, like maybe we just we're not the right fit. Maybe we don't have amazing chemistry, therefore like there's someone better for me. And again, like I, I repeatedly seem to get benefits from having read so widely as a kid. And even like as a teenager, I was reading all these like advice columns. I'd go to libraries and read magazines and mag- tons and tons of magazines. And uh, you know, on Reddit, I'd read all these relationship thread. And I'm like, dude, like no one no one is like ecstatically happy all the time. Like everyone has issues in their relationships and everyone struggles. So I was pretty early on kind of uh disabused of the notion that like relationships will ever feel like constant paradise Mm -hmm. right so as long as like you can fight well together and you trust and respect each other to like be fair to each other and you know you can apologize for your mistakes like if that that kind of foundation then i do believe that like that's all that's all you really need and it compounds over time right and this actually this actually ties a bit to something else we were talking about earlier but like I can't remember which author said this but they said, they said something like you know if you go on a f- if you go on a hundred first dates with different people like for a while it seems like you're meeting new people but after a while you're having the same experience over and over again which is uh-huh. the first date with another person you're introducing yourself again you're having that early flutter of excitement again which is nice but like you know you, you do that indefinitely and it's like you're actually just repeating the thing whereas some people think oh being married is like you're meet you're with the same person every day for the rest of your life and you get bored but no because the second date and the 50th date and the hundredth date and the thousandth date they're all different they're all you're different people each time and you have all this like shared depth and experience and you know it's the same for i guess i was going to relate that back to when you were asking like um how do you focus or what do you do like if you try a day one of a new hobby every day for, and you know, I, I would say it's worth doing for like a year, maybe if you're a teenager or okay, in your early twenties, yeah. yeah. or if you've never done it before and you're 30, like, okay. Like if you've never tried stuff, like spend some time trying a bunch of stuff just because, you know, maybe you try music and it's not for you. Then you try rock climbing and holy shit, rock climbing feels amazing. Okay. That's great. Yeah. And you, you know something about yourself, but once you've tried like a hundred things, like you're probably not going to find something that's like way like, 
100 times more exciting than one of the 100 things you've already tried. So yeah. at that point, it's probably wiser to just pick whichever thing you enjoyed the most or that or maybe you know you you do like a like okay I I mo- I enjoyed these five things the most and of these five things like this one seems the most like the the scene is exciting and interesting or I like the people and like you do a bit of thinking about that and then you just like you commit to it for at least for a few years right and you will experience things several years into a commitment that you cannot experience from repeatedly doing a day one here and there right good point and I guess yeah so that that kind of that's a bit of the long game thinking. It's a bit of what grounding means to me, I guess. And yeah, I guess I'm I'm kind of privileged in the sense that I really read so much as a child <laughs> that you know you you I really and you know it it was it feels like a privilege now, but at the time I guess it made me weird and it made me um kind of depressed and and like overburdened with really you know i was just thinking ah oh, all civilizations i was like 12 right and I'm like all civilizations collapse nothing you know the earth the sun is going to swallow the earth yeah and like, that was you, my you, big you, one <laughs> right like holy shit like oh <laughs> god was... um, and then you you kind of be shaken and and stir, like just messed up by that for a while but eventually you come back down to earth and you're like well you know friendship is still beautiful music is still beautiful and you kind of learn to breathe again and then you find that, oh, having been through that kind of shakeup, mm-hmm. um, and then you start to notice who are the people who haven't had that experience yet. And and like you have to be a bit more like careful with them in a way, because they're not, they're still kind of clinging on to something. And uh and you notice the people who have kind of broken themselves down and rebuilt themselves from scratch. They have like a lightness to them. And it's mm-hmm. it's glorious when you meet someone else mm-hmm. like that and you can just connect straight away. And yeah, that wasn't directly an answer, but I feel like... No, I think that's, that's great. That, that's good. That's good. Well, so if we move on to kind of uh, your prolificness on on the Twitter sphere, um, one of your mm-hmm. most famous things is your two memes that you've made uh, that were, mm-hmm. you know, very, very poignant, very simple. Um, there's mm-hmm. one, and, and we'll put this up on, on somewhere visually so people can see, but just to, yes. the first one is um, there's like a, uh, a ship in a in a cove if you will and the waves are going crazy and there's a whirlpool to the left and it says life is devastatingly meaningless and then to the right there's a dragon hydra uh life is excruciatingly meaningful and then there's a ship in the middle a left my ass off so uh yeah talk us through that how did that even come up and then i I think that you were briefly talking about that dichotomy you know going back and forth but you know a a lot of people ping pong between them rather than Mm -hmm you know, threading the needle uh, in, mm-hmm. in between them. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, and ping-ponging isn't necessarily bad, but I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> you know, there are a few, so there are a few poems. So th- this meme is like many, many years in the making. Like I've had mm-hmm. many prior thoughts. One is a poem by Kobayashi Isa. It okay. says, um, in this world, we walk on the roof of hell, gazing at flowers. You know, and that's always stuck with me as a Whoa. very beautiful, uh, sad, uh, you know, just just that that's the tension between, you know, like difficult and and yeah. So th- th- that's just one thing that's always stuck with me. Another one which is closer to the meme is um, this one's but I can never get his name right. Nisar Degata, his quote says, um, 
Love tells me that I am everything. Wisdom tells me that I am nothing. And between these two banks flow the river of my life. Wow. And uh, okay. right, I have so many of these. Deep. It's not mine. It's, <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, it's other people came up with this stuff, but I've just, I've just been reading so much. I just keep track of the good ones. Right. And then um, the, someone showed me another one that I didn't know about. I think this was after I made the meme, but like someone showed me, there's like an old ancient, like Jewish proverb, something like, a, you know, in one pocket, you should have a thing that says, um, I am a nobody and uh, something similar to that. Like in one pocket, it's like, I, I must forgive everyone. And then in another pocket, you must have, I must be uncompromising, something like that. And then he said, uh-huh. wisdom is knowing which pocket to reach into for which circumstance. I'm like, oh man, it's all, it's all the same thing, right? And like, you know, you take like um, yin yang, the the Taoist uh-huh. symbol. And it's mm-hmm. like, oh, in darkness, there's light. In light, there's darkness. You know, and exhale, inhale, everything in cycles. And uh, what else? There's one more. There's... Oh, and um, at some point I was... Re, re during one of my ex- earlier existential crises, um, I was rereading like Albert Camus, 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 Camus? Camus? I can never yeah. guess him, Camus, yeah, and I was reading Sisyphus, the myth of Sisyphus. Yep. And I, I, in retrospect, I now suspect that I didn't, I, I kind of misread it a little bit, but like I read it as like, um, we must. So even the sentence, one must imagine Sisyphus happy, uh-huh. like yeah. what the word must can be read several different ways, right? Like one is like, um, we must, as in like, we we should, meaning he is already happy and that's just how we should, how we see it. Like, and the other one is for our own sake, we must like project onto him the idea mm-hmm. that he should be happy because if he's not happy, then that's right. messed up, right? So there's, right. there's like two ways of interpreting it. And I didn't quite see both meanings initially. I initially interpreted it as, oh, you know, Camus is, it's kind of doing like this cop out and being like like this. So I so I think recently somebody went viral for her interpretation, which is that you must imagine Sisyphus like kind of like enjoying having a daily routine and whatnot. Okay. <laughs> and it's 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 a I don't think it's a bad interpretation. You know, like if, if I mean if it works for you and it makes you feel better going about your life, like great, right? Um, but like when I was reading that, I think I was quite depressed, and I'm like that seems unrealistic. It seems kind of um. Not unrealistic, but it seems kind of like you're bargaining with the universe, right? Like you're kind mm. of um, trying to persuade yourself that there is meaning when there is none, something like that. And and what kind of... So I, 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 I thought about it a bunch of ways and I thought about a bunch of other things I had read and seen. And I was very much sold on this idea of like absurd humor and the sense that um, like life is life is a joke literally and mm-hmm. there's this great essay by I can't remember his name but like it's about um, <laughs> Wiley E. Coyote and Roadrunner okay. yeah yeah and about how like in a way we are like Wiley E. Coyote you know because like the the humor of the show is that the Roadrunner will break the rules of the universe so it'll be things like he'll paint a, right. a, a, a thing on, a, on the wall like a fake road and then he expects the roadrunner to crash into the rock but somehow the roadrunner gets to break the laws of that universe and run yeah. into the ro- into the road and then Wiley's like oh shit I seem to have a magic paintbrush or something I'm gonna and then he runs and he crashes into the stone and like it's absurd it's unfair and it's funny and we laugh right and yeah. and the essayist is like that's life you know life is 
unfair. It makes no sense. Um, the and the beautiful phrase was um, the your expectations are the setup. You know, like mm. what you think is gonna happen. You think you're gonna be happy, or you think you're gonna have success, or you think whatever it is that you think is gonna life is gonna be like. That's that's the setup. And then reality, actual reality, when it bangs you in the face, that's the punchline. And so mm. your life is a joke. And I was like, oh man, that's so you know, it's it's like deep, it's like deep, it's like meditative. It's like oh fuck, you know, like all the all the things that I have despaired about and been disappointed about. That there, there is kind of a humor in it. It's funny because I thought it was gonna go another way, right? And then when right. when you can see the humor in that, and you can act if you can actually find a way to laugh. And the thing is, no one else can. If someone else is laughing at you about it, that's not cool, right? Like then you just feel like you're getting right. mocked. But right. if you can find the humor in it within yourself, and you're able to laugh. From from within yourself, there's a sovereignty in that, and so that's when I so I wrote a, a, a essay titled "One Must Imagine Sisyphus Lolling," L O L I N G, oh. like, <laughs> and so like he's like pushing the thing up the thing. It's like, oh, it's fucking stupid. Oh my god, it's lame. Like whatever it is, but he sees the humor. He is Wiley E Coyote. We are all Wiley E Coyote in right. life, and so I had this sense of when you are in a horrible situation try to find the humor in it like again I, I can't prescribe that to somebody else like if someone's mom just died I'm not gonna be like hey isn't that kind of funny like no that's me being an asshole but what I try to do for myself is when I am when, when I can find the humor in something then there is release and there is and anytime there's a contradiction right so mm-hmm. I, and I think that was the that was a tweet that um preceded the meme so I was like uh, when there are two seemingly contradictory things there's usually some overlap in which the tension is funny. And if you can find a way to laugh, then there's a freedom in, in embodying it. And yeah, so like in a practical everyday sense, it's like, oh, you know, um, my best writing happens when I have like pure creative freedom and no stress and no, you know, demands on my life. But I have bills to pay and I got to ship this by tomorrow. <laughs> and, and then there's that, well, that's unfair, but that's life, you know, and you straight off. I can, yeah. If I can find the humor in it, like and like something like I think when I was working on my second book, I'm like, oh yeah, I have a year to condense all of human psychology in a book, right? Which is like that's not possible. And like <laughs> the the impossibility of the challenge, it can either stress you out and grind you down, or you can laugh, see that it's not actually possible, and then in that humor, in the moment of laughter you can sometimes get a flash of insight and it's like, well, it's not actually condensing everything, but it's a valiant attempt. And and you can see that I'm I'm like blazing it, right? Uh, yeah, Ray Bradbury has some quotes about how every great poet, every great author, like at some level when you're reading it, you feel like they are vibing that they are going to live forever. Even though we all Ooh. know that, no, no human yeah, lives yeah, forever. Yeah. But in right. that moment, like, holy shit, that guy is in the zone. He's flowing. He's he's embraced eternity in that moment. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of what I... And so, like, for me, that's what, like, El Mao is. It's like, you really see the humor of being human, being a finite being in an infinite existence, right? Or infinite possibility. And, and how unfair it is, but how funny that we are the ones subjected to that. And if you can laugh while you are in the struggle between cosmic challenges, then there is that's the path of like freedom and and peace yeah. and joy, hopefully. Well, and yeah, you... so I mean, devastatingly meaningless is just you know collapse of all meaning. Like, what's the point of anything? Blah yeah. blah blah. Excruciatingly meaningful is like, oh my god, everything I do has consequences, and like you know, like I can help people. 
like and like you, you you then get worked up about that it's like oh everything i write is so important and then if it's so important then you can't you freeze and then there's the thing in that and so in both cases there's a humor to it yeah yeah well it seems like that meme is a lot more descriptive and then your next meme the domino meme is much more mm -hmm. prescriptive so it's a, it basically and i will put in a, it on the screen but the lowest diamond or uh, domino and then it, they pro get progressively bigger uh mm -hmm. and then you basically put you know just little uh lines uh on each domino so it goes love and curiosity friendly ambitious nerds high trust and high openness scene of exploration nourishing and supportive medicines shift in global consciousness globe golden age of humanity so you yeah. went all in i like i love it but um <laughs> but also it's a little bit more prescriptive than descriptive so can you kind of tell me about your thought process on kind of coming up with that but then also linking them you know, towards whatever a golden age of humanity is in, in, in your eyes. Yeah. I mean, I would say, I would say that they're both aspirational in a sense. Okay. Good point. But, yeah. uh, so, so some, some background context to the Domino's meme, the Domino's meme was actually like the second Domino's meme I made that day. So earlier that okay. day, <laughs> I had done like the sad ending version of it. So the, the, okay. the sad ending version of it was like, um, uh, trauma and abuse or someone goes through some difficult, scenario and then um they don't know they have not processed that trauma or whatever so they're needy and they inflict that pain on other people and then there is like a anti i gotta look it up but it's like the anti asshole defense system or like you know just some okay. kind of social okay. social yeah. norm to to kind of um to stop bad behaviors but then it's like wrongfully implemented. So once you have a wrongfully implemented uh, attempt to stifle bad outcomes, you just stifle everything, right? And it's because everyone's like afraid of saying anything wrong or you know doing anything hurtful. And so then you have like intellectual stagnation and like cultural stagnation. Like people are just afraid to say anything and they're not curious anymore. And then it's like just bleak ending of like, the world sucks now because you know <laughs> some some bad shit happened. Somebody else retaliated in a bad way. There's this back and forth of badness and suppression and pain and sad. And then and I looked at it and I'm like, ah, that looks depressing as hell. Like yeah. I I I need to draw the like sing the counter melody to that. You know, so like so both it's a tale of two cities, right? So like and and we all see how things get worse, but I think people might not see so immediately how things can get better. Yeah. And yeah, so friendly, at that point I had already written Friendly Ambitious Nerds the book and um but I had not yet like that that was my first I think elegant articulation of how things get better. And I think it, it's it was very much meant to be like the opposite of a downward spiral. So when you see the downward mm -hmm. spiral from how, you know, kind of um people feel isolated and alone and scared and then they are suspicious of each other and then blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, hey, what's the opposite of that? So like, you have to have curiosity and love and then you have to have people embodying it. You have to have people sharing it with each other, which is like trade, specialization. And then, I mean, like the later dominoes, I was kind of, I was just go like, just enjoying the, like, I, I, I don't seriously, I have, even now, I have not yet like thought in a lot of detail about what I even mean by shift in global consciousness I, I can i can improvise what i think i mean by it but like it doesn't i'm not like fixated on that so like mm -hmm. right now if mm -hmm. if you read like my so I, I have like a public 
um document of my current state of thinking and i'm just like how do i find 1000 you know like uh so i the, the phrase i use is mint a thou- thousand erasmuses erasmus was i would say a friendly ambitious nerd in the 1500s who was like just very prolific wrote letters to everybody it was kind of everybody's mutual you know kind of like encouraging people to be mm-hmm. like more effective and like those people who were doing that sending letters back and forth they were kind of um they were like a staging ground for the thinking that would become like the post-empire, post-religious like authority mm-hmm. society. They they were they were in the process of reimagining what, Definitely. like it would like you know. So they they before we had like nation states basically like nation states might not have been born in their present state without a bunch of dudes writing basically emailing each other back and forth about philosophy and and <laughs> and and you know how, how should life be lived you know are we just like secularism humanism all those things like they were they were they were thinking out loud about that stuff and you know it it, it really is striking to me when you look back at human history you're tempted to think that if you don't look too closely you're tempted to think that progress is kind of slow and steady all the time but when you zoom in closer and closer it's like it's very lumpy it's like a lot of progress happens in a very small amount of time and space because like a cluster of individuals who are unusually kind of high agency high act, like this very potent and like most of human history benefits from the incredible output of a remarkably small number of people throughout history and you know ideally we would expand that number of people i think i think we have you know it's an interesting thing is um you know a thing that i didn't even stop to ask while daydreaming about a golden age is whether we might already be in it Mm -hmm. and i'm starting to consider the possibility like just so like for to to consider that thesis i would be like I submit Twitter, Wikipedia, YouTube, you know, like all of those things. And again, there's horrible shit in each of those things as well. Sure. But if you were to just isolate the learning stuff, the Definitely. history, the, the how to do stuff, and you presented all of that to like Da Vinci and Emerson and Montaigne, they would be, wow. Yeah. You know, like, so, and, and you know, also if you read like, Da Vinci did not think he was living in a renaissance while he was living in it. You know, it's really, in retrospect, there are, like, historians and, and uh, you know, like, Vasari was writing about... They, they glorify the past, basically. But in the moment, you're just like, oh, you know, you don't wake up and think, ah, what a nice day it is to live in the golden age of whatever, right? You just, you, you go to work, you meet your friends, yeah. you, do, you do what you can. Um, yeah, and so... It's possible that we might be live we, we might be kind of living in it now and we just don't perceive it in which case the work actually gets simpler because it just means that we need to help people appreciate what we already have and that's actually it's um it's more important than people might think it is and it's more valuable than people might think it is because mm-hmm. the, you know it's it's really just like one and it's funny because people people generally want better lives but the idea that you could have a better life without actually changing anything like like dramatically, but just by changing your perspective such that you appreciate your existing life more, it seems like cheating. But if it feels legit, it can change your disposition. It can mm-hmm. change your attitude. And then other people feel that. And then your social relationships get better. Mm-hmm. And then like you, it's a kind of manifestation. Like mm-hmm. It really does, does work. And yeah, you know, so that's, I see that as part of my work. I also think about how like, um, Apparently, when 
like when the Wright brothers made their first flight. And again, I think like 10 years before, their, like a few years before their first flight, people were like, oh, it's not going to happen in like a thousand years. Oh, and they right. Did it, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then after, after they did it, it still took like five plus years before like the, I like they flew and landed and the news was reported and nobody really cared for like five, <laughs> six years. But it's just like, oh, whatever. And same for um when Alexander Fleming presented penicillin to his peers, like other doctors and whatever. Oh, wow. He literally, okay. so literally he, he dropped, I, I have to make like a video or something about this. Like he, like if you read, like he literally, so he says, like, here's my presentation. This thing that I've done, it like kills, um, by, I can never get it right. It it kills. So how I store that information in my head is I have I have punched pestilence in the dick for all of mankind. You know, <laughs> like up until like so Montaigne died of like a tongue infection that nobody dies from because you just now you just go to the doctor. He was like one of the wealthiest guys of his time, and he died like 20, 30 years earlier than he should have because of like a virus, like a you know a thing that today we cure with antibiotics and we don't even think about it. You go to the doctor, you're done, and like he gave that to the world and like nobody asked him any questions. He's like, any question? Like, you know, here's my findings. Anybody got anything to ask? And they're like, ah, oh, no, no, I don't know. No, it's like, and so it, it really, it really um drove in for me that uh everyone recognizes good ideas where a good idea is something that is kind of a good version of what you're familiar with. But when you have a great idea, something that really advances mm-hmm. things like a decade, no one knows what the fuck to think. They're like, what yeah. did we just see? That makes no sense. And so they can't, and, and, and the thing is, a great idea and a shit idea get the same response, right? So you, <laughs> like, if, if you have a great idea, you don't actually really know, you know? It's like, you, you hope that it's great, but you can't actually get, like, immediate feedback. It's like time will tell, or posterity will tell. Right. And, right. but I mean, so I bring up all of that in the sense that um, it made me realize that there must already be penicillins and man flight and what, like, um, innovation is not the bottleneck to adoption of great ideas by humanity. And so that's why I work in marketing. Or, you know, that's why I work in <laughs> storytelling. And because, like, I, the, yeah, there's already innovation happening and it's not being recognized, right? Like, so, like, so I, and I mean, I have friends who are passionate about innovation and like advancing science and I respect that. And again, I think each of us should do what we feel inclined in our hearts to do. And I'm sure. like, I bet there's someone out there who needs this kind of help and they are, you know, so, that's that. Uh, yeah, I went on a on a. This is about golden. This is about golden age stuff. And uh, well, here I, I'll con- I'll continue. So Alex Kennedy on Twitter, he basically mm-hmm. asked, um, "Where are we on on the on that domino right now?" And then I think you kind of started to to play around in this. Is when do you predict we'll all look around and be like, "Yep, this is a renaissance." All right. So I think we already <laughs> went over that. That you know, I, I, it, in the moment you probably won't be re- realizing it, but then where yeah, are we really? You know. The, the there are some signs though. So I, I do uh, feel yeah. like um I do feel like again it's the 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 satisfying thing about the Domino's meme is that it, it implies a very linear this happens, then this happens, then this happens. It's a very uh-huh. kind of yeah. that yeah. satisfying yeah. one by one thing. In practice, it's a bit more nebulous. It's like gas, right? Like um so you know, I think in our sphere of like Twitter and whatever, like we've kind of solved for love and curiosity as as like norms and and the way people dis- have conversations with each other, but yeah. it's not twenty four se- on twenty four seven. Like sometimes people get mean, sometimes people get so it's like it's not perfect, but mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. there more than not. And I would say again, like friendly ambitiousness, like we have a few dozen of us, I would say, like who are like kind of 
active and in in network with each other. And every time I think somebody in this network interfaces with somebody else in that network and they're like they hire them as a client or they you know like they find some way to work together or they get go to a meetup together or they date you know maybe get married right there's all these possible interactions and every time I would say so I, I describe them as friendly ambitiousness but this is my language you know so I don't want to impose right. my language on everybody else but like anytime one of these good people finds another one of these good people and increases their social graph of that kind of good person and they have a positive interaction. To them, that's a fraction of wow. This feels amazing. This feels mm-hmm. I, like you know. So like people who do a meetup, go to Vibe Camp or whatever, right? they go. They're surrounded by other people and like wow. This feels like magic. So that's that's a a flavor of of what the golden age is like. And the greatest end goal is we want everyone who wants that feeling to be able to have it. And in we are in the process of like you know getting better at doing it ourselves, getting better at teaching it to other people, sharing it mm-hmm, with one another. Sure. And yeah, so I I would say in some ways for myself, in my personal life, relative to what my life was like beforehand, I'm already in it sort of for myself. Like I'm already in that, in that journey or in that that vortex, however you want to put it. Uh, there's more to do. You know, there's more people to help. There's more. Uh, I I I think when I cross some threshold of financial independence, that will feel like a certain kind of paradise. So I can really. Wow, I wake up. So it used to be one day I uh, used to dream while I was going to work. One day I'll be able to make a living um, by writing. Right? Just writing right. stuff that that I think is... No, I mean, so I guess when I was in school, I want to make a living as a write, like writing. And then so I got a job where I was writing in marketing. And, you know, it was stuff that I, I liked my colleagues. I liked my work. But it's, if I'm honest, it's not like I want to spend my days writing about marketing every day. You know, like, like I, I, I do find it interesting. But it was a, a profession, but it was not like a vocation. Mm. But so when I so then when I'm going to work, I'm like, well, I'm good at this and I like it. But like, I dream of one day not needing to write about only marketing. Like, I can write about whatever right. I like. And so then I wrote a couple of books that are largely about what I like. And you know, it's like, well, now I'm living that dream, right? And and the, I get the dream keeps expanding, right? It's like, well, one day I'll be able to write like frivolous nonsense right and not <laughs> like so not even like you know like in like just like i still have to think about well you know how am i going to sell ebooks or how am i going to get patrons or how am i going to get uh whatever it is to pay the bills and i each year i get closer and closer to i don't need to care at all i can do whatever i want like i th- that is a threshold that i look forward to reaching and then i'll i, I but i can bet that when i'm there i'll be like well, I'll 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 have to remind myself to take a moment to really celebrate and take it in. But after that, I would be like, well, now I have enough money to take care of myself, so I should start thinking about how I can help other people, and then Ooh. how can I help yep. like my the people who make the most impact. And then once I have that, I'll be like, how can I help? So there's there's always a, a bigger domino, so uh, which is great, right? It's, it's a sense of purpose, sense of of continuity. So I I always get slightly annoyed when I see people being like, oh, what do I do now that I have. Like quasi retired after I made my like software, like like help people do it. Like it's so simple. 
so so I guess that you kind of started going into my next question. So Chris D or Sensful Ronan uh, mm-hmm. asks, what what are some essential ingredients for supportive and nourishing scenes? So I know you've you've done stuff with interintellect. You've also kind of mm-hmm. adjacent to to this part of Twitter. Uh, you've kind of mm-hmm. become a quote. I think you called it in your yeah we were Voyagers piece a switchboard switchboard for earnest nerds. Love it. Mm. Um, so how do you how do you think about like not just facilitating um, this kind of these kind of scenes, but then also establishing them, iterating, evolving, and then also making them th- th- towards the dominoes, you know, supportive and nourishing rather than the first domino mm. that you may be made. Mm. Yeah, there's a there's a whole bunch of variables about what makes good scenes. Um, and you know, when I look at existing scenes, I think there's not enough welcoming of new people. I mean, it's again mm. like this, This we could do a whole two hours on this probably, so I gotta try <laughs> and keep it snappy. But um, yeah, you know, so scenes should, scenes should be lively. You know, they sh- mm. the, the problem with a lot of, so scenes, scenes tend to do well and then they tend to die. And I've always thought that if you want to understand something, find out how it doesn't, how it fails so that you know, like if you want to understand how your car works, one of the fastest ways you can do it is Google like car problems and be like, oh, this thing does, oh, you know, like by re- reverse engineering how it fails, yeah. you get a sense of how to keep it working or healthy. Right? And so scenes should be lively and like everyone wants to participate in a lively scene, but uh, there is a kind of self um, homeostatic effect that I don't think it's like anybody's fault but like um, scenes tend to get kind of insular without any external without you know it's just, it's just a it's like a it's almost like a law of physics kind of mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. a healthy scene has good people who sort of um, keep the chemistry you know keep the molecules flowing because otherwise if you end up with like a scene where one person has the highest status and everyone else kind of defers to them and like there's no way for people to go up except by even just saying go up is, is the wrong model it's no longer a scene right it's like a hierarchy it's like a cult whereas you need like liveliness you need people entering and exiting you need new people showing up and being encouraged and feeling that new voices are appreciated and respected that's what keeps it lively uh, that's part of it people need to be pub- people need to be producing work that is public facing that is mm. not about the scene right yep. so i if you if you follow me on twitter so some people call the part of twitter that we're on this part of twitter teapot i'm very careful not to use the word teapot because mm. and not because i think it's a bad word but because i want to remain welcoming and accessible to new people because once you have jargon, then the jargon becomes a thing people centralize around. Yeah. And then you have insiders and outsiders. And, and again, there's something intimate and nice about having some insiders. But like, uh, it then becomes this kind of group hug. And, and right. it's yeah. hard to control those dynamics at scale. So mm. there has to always be people who are like stirring the pot and like welcoming new people and, and doing that kind of thing. Uh, and, and the work should be, there should be some work that is, public facing so like like it's very that's very obvious in like music scenes and art scenes like you should be making stuff for the public because if you start making insular stuff where most of your scene is the scene discussing the scene then again right. that gets incestuous and right, right? Okay. so okay. so i always tell and you know i've i've been kind of invited to a few different communities sometimes like i'm i'm like this friendly nomadic switchboard traveling uncle and i i'll get invited to like this meditation heavy group or this 
uh, you know, like effective altruists or whatever, yeah. some group of people. Yeah. And I always tell every group, um, what you have here is amazing that you have a group for people to feel at home in. And my wish to, for you is that you fuck off now and then, <laughs> you know, you kind of from like, like get out and like, like, and, and not just, you know, not because what you have is bad because it is good, but like you gotta, you gotta, sometimes you gotta, you gotta leave your hometown to see it for the first time, 100%. right? To appreciate what you have. And, and when you grow out into the world, you bring back perspective that anybody who's only in that hometown, they won't see, they don't have that perspective. So it's like, if everyone leaves and comes back and not, not all at once necessarily, like, but yeah, yeah, you should, yeah. you should encourage people to go out into the world, see different things. And that is healthy for the group. It's healthy for the individual. Um, it just makes for livelier scenes, I think. It's, yeah. So no scene should be like, everyone here spends all their time here. Again, that's not a scene yeah, anymore. That's yeah. a cult. Right, yeah, like a yeah. scene should be. I always think it's like a public park, right? Like people yeah. show up after work, or they show up with their kids, and they kind of participate a little bit, and then they move on. And there's that that fluidity and flexibility there. Um, other stuff. Well, I mean, here, here's uh, I, a follow up for that. Fred Sharman, one of my recent guests, he uh, asked, like, because this goes with this, is how how do you resist like bad faith attacks from bad actors when a community is built on maximizing openness? Because uh, that, like, I think you kind of started talking about this censor self censorship, you know, those mm -hmm. kind of things that happens. Like, how do you, you know, how how do you think about you know bad faith kind of stuff in within a community? Okay. Uh, so first thing I would say is I wouldn't say maximize openness. So I I do say mm. high openness, but it should mm. if you try to maximize openness again, like so be very cautious of max of be very cautious of trying to max anything, because right. trying to max any variable has a way. It's like the Goodhart's law kind of thing, right? Like when you try to overdo one particular, you make one number go up, you will compromise some other thing along the way that spoils 100%. the whole thing. Yep. And so, yeah, so we want high openness. And when you have high openness, there will be bad actors. And what I have learned from my experience and my study and whatnot is that, uh, again, so scenes have to be careful not to deny the existence of bad actors. So that's unhealthy. But you also don't want to come down too hard on bad actors in a way that is vindictive because that's also unhealthy. And uh, it's difficult enough to do by yourself or in a small friend group and the more you, the bigger your scene is the more there will be these like big waves of percolation like you know again it's like if somebody did something bad on the internet right like they cut someone in line or whatever in a video and then they get like 5,000 people all saying and maybe none of them says anything horrible but like 5,000 people just kind of that's not cool like you know they don't need to hear it five thousand times they can yeah, hear it like yeah, five yeah. or six times they're like okay i got it they get I got it, it they get know? it yeah <laughs> so even i i have a youtube video where i'm interviewing a guest and i'm not that was like one of the first videos i did with someone else and there's like a dozen comments saying like oh you keep interrupting your, your guest i'm like oh, okay like you know like it's, it's it does Fair take point. yeah it's 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 on me it's on me to learn to metabolize the fact that each new person making that comment thinks that they are the first person to say it, maybe, yep. or they don't notice that there's already five, other, seven, twelve. Other. Um, but yeah, so circling back to bad actors, um, there's a few different parts to this. One is always um center the experience of well, okay, wait, even before I go there, um, different scenes and different communities have different cultural norms on 
how much not I, I don't want to say how much bad actors are tolerated, but like um mm. they have different different I think usually so usually if someone is revealed to be a bad actor, this person did something bad, we all saw it, that's fucked up. Then you have like you have a kind of a due process. You're like, okay, th- what you did is bad. Um, we're gonna ask you to not promise not to do that, make some amends, whatever. Like that's fairly straightforward. When if someone does something like criminal, like easy action, if somebody like where where it's messy is the gray area where it's not clear what exactly happened. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in that domain, I think different scenes and communities have different overlapping norms of what they would want. And even even within the same scene, different sections of the scene may sort themselves out by what they think is acceptable and not. Yep. And that's okay as well. It's okay for different parts of a scene to... Like, you could have one part of the scene being, like, the most volatile. Like, oh, anything goes. You can insult each other all day long. Yep. And, you know... And that's, I think that's okay. And, you know, maybe, maybe someone else might think that's not okay. And if that if they feel that, they can try to change the culture of that part of the scene or they can cultivate a different section of it. Or, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of different ways to do it. But um, yeah, so if we're talking about like someone shows up to a public-ish space and they are being belligerent and mean and, and nasty to people, um, if it's possible to get them out, I'm quite pro booting people out of scenes, which is <laughs> which which some some people find that um a bit shocking that I'm I'm quite comfortable like blocking people or or like asking people to leave or whatever because you know there there is this this whole um worldview which is like we are all misfits and social outcasts and bully and people have bullied us and therefore we don't want to bully anybody else and um you know like we're not we're not going to ask people to leave because that's not cool right right and yeah so you know i i would say before you ask someone to leave if it's if it's just like slight social abrasiveness if they're like you know being kind of disagreeable in an unpleasant way and people don't like it like i'll be like okay take them aside talk to them and be like like so dm them if it's online or if you can bring them aside if it's a party like hey i gotta tell you something that's kind of awkward and uncomfortable but let me get it out of the way okay uh the way you're talking people don't really like that i don't really like it i don't think it's cool um and if you keep up with that stuff like we're gonna have to ask you to leave and i would rather not do that so could you modify your behavior whatever uh that that should work a bunch of the time yeah but you know if it doesn't work then yeah like two strikes or whatever ask them to leave and um the thing is i've been in multiple like group chats and facebook groups and whatever where nobody wants to be the bad guy and right. so <laughs> One the, when when you don't so this is the ugly the kind of ugly thing about community management, um if you don't ask the bad guy the quote unquote bad guys to leave and again like com- all caveats about whether or not the person is actually bad blah 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 and even just say tedious like so like uh Oscar Wilde said it's not about whether people are good or bad it's whether they are charming or tedious and you know there's oh. there's a bit of an there's a bit of uh. I like that. There's like the gray area there for like bad people who are charming and tolerated and like that's a separate issue. But like tedious people drive away interesting people. Mm-hmm. And they don't they don't make an announcement like I'm leaving because this tedious person is here. They just be like, "Oh, I guess I'm not going to that, that that guy was so annoying. I'm just not going to show up next time. I got other things. I got like multiple things." They won't they might not even think oh, I'm going to stop attending this party or this community or whatever. Because especially the, the highest value members of your community have other other stuff competing for their attention as well. So they'll just 
kind of casually slide away into the next thing, right? And um, you won't really notice this happening until one whole layer of like your best people have left. And now the whole place is more tedious and boring. And then it just, it's a cycle to, it's a race to the bottom, you know, and then the whole thing just kind of dies. And nobody is personally responsible for that failure, right? Yeah. Or you could say that the community leader or the, you know, and a scene, I would say a scene is broader than, so if it's like one Facebook group or a group chat or whatever, like there's one person who started it and that's much more clear cut. Uh, that person is responsible. But if it's like a wider Twitter scene or whatever, like it's a bit more um, nebulous and anybody claiming to be an authority is kind of... So like, I don't think I have asserted myself on Twitter. I, I don't think I've... I think I could. Like, so if something... If some shit really went down yeah. and I felt that community norms need to be reasserted for the good of all I think I could do it and I think the fact that I haven't done anything like that so far just adds more um, credibility to if and when I have to do it you know it's oh, like okay. yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like that, that, there's this whole <laughs> quote about how like uh, when the quiet guy gets angry that's when you know you fucked up right that kind of thing it's like yeah. uh, yeah. So some people kind of some people like to play like that hall monitor role of telling everybody there's this thing happening in this scene and it's bad. Uh, that's another kind of tricky, challenging thing. Like publicly talking about how there's supposedly something bad in the scene, and then everyone starts panicking. Like, is it me? Is it that guy? Right. <laughs> and it's like uh, the stuff like that is probably better not done on mainstream public channels. Yeah. But you know, if I were so I don't mind saying it like on a podcast like this. For people to consider, but like if I tweeted, you should be careful about how you talk about that. Is like yeah, again, you're perpetuating the saying. same the 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 atmosphere of suspicion and uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So what I do if I feel like some people are being sus is I change the topic and just so it, this goes back to the work, right? So it's like if it's a music scene, make music. If it's whatever tweeting scene, like po post some nerd shit about a book or whatever. Like just <laughs> bring bring the attention back to. And I'm not saying like deny the other thing but like right, right you know so like in and in in relationships like in like romantic relationships there's a sense of um for every like difficult criticism you give each other you have to give each other like five or six compliments or something to ah, to feel like yes. it balances out mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. otherwise if you're just criticizing each other back and forth even if you're both being completely honest with each other if it just feels like you're you're hating on each other every day like why are you together it feels like your relationship is is that right? So, um, and there's another kind of human cycle again. Like divorces happen more than we would like in as a society right. because yeah. people are not natural at this. So you have to actively take the time to compliment people, celebrate good work, right? There's all these hygiene principles about keeping the scene lively, fun, interesting, a joyful place to be, even if bad shit happens. So it's it's you know, yeah. So I, I, we have two more questions. So next one, I, I'm going to keep on my STS or science technology studies hat. Um, so that's what I'm going to school for here in grad school in Munich. Nice. Um, and it's all about basically the social construction of science and technology and and really, you know, technology is not neutral. It's how people use it. And uh, but then there's also another side of this or the I wouldn't say opposite, but, um, you know, science is the pursuit of fact and facts don't care about your feelings. You know, that kind of bastardized version of the other side. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of how do you think about, you know, the social 
aspects of of science and technology because i i mean i it's just a question i'm kind of interested in hearing to be honest with you <laughs> right so i mean i'm i'm not a scientist i'm just yeah. a nerd <laughs> but uh i do have an interest in science and i have an interest in the applications of science and you know i have said that um you know so i, I define a nerd as someone who whose behavior is directed by their curiosity and so all scientists are nerds in my framework because their curiosity is guiding their behavior and curiosity is past a certain threshold, it becomes dangerous, right? And that's mm. part of why while everyone in society will pay lip service to it and say, oh yeah, curiosity is great. Like most people don't really like, there's a lot of words for putting down curious people, especially in the social domain. It's like in like just a uh, busybody. There's a whole bunch oh, of sure. words like, yeah, like yeah. that. Like just to, to put down someone who's curious and like meddles, meddling in so like there's the social f- aspect of meddling in affairs that you shouldn't, and then like in in science or in knowledge, like there's that sense of your and you know in in ancient times it might be like you're meddling with forces you don't understand, oh, you're sure, playing yeah. God, you're kind of, and there's that, and then there's um, you know I think more straightforwardly, every knowledge is power, right? Every tool is simultaneously a weapon, whether you realize it or not. Like you can you. You know, when you make fertilizer, you make TNT, right? When you make whatever it is that you you make nuclear reactors, you make nuclear bombs. Like whatever it is that you make that's powerful, power can be used in some other way, right? You make vaccines, you make bioweapons. Like there's always some um, potential misuse of anything. And I do think that, um, you know, this is a hard... So Carl Sagan talked about this like when they were discussing like nuclear weapons, you know, and they were saying things like... um, nuclear deterrence is too important to be left to the experts alone mm-hmm. right and mm-hmm. and yet people who are not experts don't have sufficient they're not even well informed enough to even know what they're talking about and so they become susceptible to like demagoguery like they have yep. some some pol- scaremongering politician tells them that like some x is more dangerous than y therefore whatever and they'll just go with it so i mean the the ideal beautiful answer would be to just level up the science education of the entire species yesterday if we could but we don't currently have that right so we have to work with the you know you go to to war with the army you have not the army you wish you had right so ah uh, it's tricky um i do still think that efforts should be made to provide thoughtful clear like non-condescending science mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. for anybody who wants it. Like sometimes, you know, so like um, I was reading a thing in, I think it was like, so during COVID, I was reading a thing in, in like New York Times or something where they were asking kids to wear masks, I think. And um, there was something like, they were coming up with like bullshit explanations for how, why masking is good because like, um, it's socially like the child the child is this is very convoluted attempt to try and make it sound like a good thing when it wasn't mm-hmm. and it would have been better to i i believe i believe it's so like it i think it's better to tell the truth and even if the truth is like so the truth is like okay kids uh teachers parents whatever like here's where we're at we think that this is the best cause state of affairs for your health um, you don't get to see each other's faces or whatever. That's probably not good for you. We're sorry, right? You you might hate us for that later on. But like you know, that kind of honest 
and like in in Singapore, that's what that's like, you know. So it's right. it's uh, I I'm kind of blessed in our country. It's like there is that consensus of we will keep you updated on what the situation is and what we think the truth is, and and that seems to be harder to do in like uh more complex media environments or more complex political environments. So I I, I don't want to make like specific comments about those <laughs> things, but like I mean the, the the general principle there, I guess, is um. I I hope people don't feel compelled to compromise on their values because it seems like other people are also compromising on their values. I feel like I, I saw something like that very recently that that kind of shocked me a little bit, and it's, it's something super trivial. It's like, um, I'm I hate this. Oh, it was like one of those pick crew Twitter. Th- you, you post a picture oh, sure. of all your people, mm-hmm. right? And somebody was like, "Oh, I hate this, but everyone is doing it, so I have to do it." And I'm like. <sighs> You don't. No, you don't. You don't have. To, if if you actually hate it, don't do it. Like you don't have to do the thing that you hate just because. And so, like, I feel like it's connected. I feel like um, so I mean to answer the direct question of like, do facts care about your feelings or not? Um, I think that science, you know, so I like. I, I mean, I have I have what I think is a common sense. To me, I feel like it's a common sense thing, which is like. Well, if we're talking about like chemical formulas and and like those very material based things, it's pretty straightforward that, uh, you know. So I I, so I, I guess different. Like I've I've seen something where people say things like, "Oh, ma- some kinds of math is racist," and I'm like, oh, I, I don't I, I don't buy that. <laughs> I don't see how that could be. Uh, I if if someone I knew felt strongly about it i would be curious to hear them out like what they they, they probably mean something a bit more subtle and like they're just using that that I phrase see. like maybe it's like oh some math department in some whatever has like internal politics as like, oh okay that's why it's not like x exactly. plus my is no, like, no. okay sure <laughs> right so sure in, in that case i think it's very straightforward but when we talk about things like you know i don't know energy policy or something and again yeah. I, i'm not qualified to comment on on energy policy but um yeah, I don't know what was your question again exactly. I no, no, know. it. I mean, it was more like the social construction of science and tech, but it's it's all good. I mean, I think you you went around uh, kind of how to think about that, and I think that's what's more important. Um, I know we're, I, we're almost at time, so last question. I asked this to to basically all my guests. Um, as you can see behind me, uh, this is the Earth and the stars and everything, and uh, there's nice. a big kind of uh, thought process. Um, that astronauts and people that have gone to space and and the moon uh, experienced this thing called the overview, overview. effect. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So um, I'm doing some own research into that, which is very interesting and rethinking it uh, in, in other ways. And there's some super interesting things like there was in uh, the, the research literature uh, in astrobiology about the break off phenomenon. So people go up and then they feel like they're breaking off from the earth, not, you know, being more a part of it, et cetera. So there's a lot going on and there's more narratives, but I want to keep it in this and that like, well, do you have, have you thought about that? Uh, have you, you know, thought about being in space and looking down and then what are kind of the thoughts that are going through your mind? Do you want to say something? Some people have said they want to just probably read some Rilke, you know, poetry or something. Other people said that yeah. it'd be too much and they just wouldn't do anything. Other people yeah. had grandiose yeah. kind of ideas. So what, what what's yeah. your thought process? Yeah, I, 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 I was, I fell in love with the idea when I first heard about it around like 2012, 2013. It, it was in fact, at some point, like one of my main motivations in life, I would say was, let's get commercially viable space tourism possible as soon as possible, and balloons or whatever, just send as many people <laughs> up 
to see it. Send all the world leaders, right? Get everyone yeah. to see as there's an Edgar Mitchell quote, yeah, right? like about 100%. out there. You drag, you want to drag a politician by this, yeah. Like I, 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 I was very obsessed with trying to do that. And so when I say phrases like shift in global consciousness, that was kind of part. I think Neil Tyson had a quote about how, um, again, when we went to the moon and we took the photo of Earthrise and we saw that image yep, of, yep. you know, like the continents without borders, and then from there you get concepts like doctors without borders so there was being able to behold the earth as a whole without the maps and all that like expanded human consciousness a certain way and getting more people up there i think would make a difference um going to even going to mars i believe would make a difference in a way that nobody is correctly estimating like it's mm. just it's just it's an ontological shift in a way that that changes a felt sense anyway um yeah i want to go <laughs> i want to have like a glass of have a glass of whiskey um you know facetime my mom if it works uh and just yeah it just you know it it's it's i i anticipate that it would be a spiritual experience for the better like so you know um i know william shatner went up with uh, bezos and exactly. whatever and he his experience was pretty sad right like it it, yep. it you know it basically it seems like a drug trip basically if you read about what people's trip reports on psychedelics some people have the time of their lives some people have a very bad trip and i feel that a bad trip is not necessarily a bad thing you know i think a bad it it might be a bad experience in the moment but it it's unpleasant because you're facing unpleasant things within yourself you know you're facing you're, you're coming to terms with who you are and there are things about yourself that you you know in going away from the earth you realize oh god like um, you know, I when I'm away from my friends and my like phone and my money uh-huh. and all the things that I care about, like, like uh, I, I feel so disconnected and and um alone and whatever I that. Whereas on the other hand, um, there's this book about sea power by a retired Navy admiral, and he says he's so he's such a he's a poet. He's like an admiral who's a poet. It's amazing. He talk he talks about how when you're out at deep sea in the ocean, right? Like uh away from you can't see land anywhere. And it's like at night and you see the stars and you're oh, like, God. I'm away from land, I'm away from earth, I'm away from anyone, you know, that I can like it's just me and my crewmate. But as we navigate by the stars, we are on the same path that every sailor in the history of mankind for thousands of years, we have all looked at the same night sky. We all looked at the same moon and felt the same, a bit of yearning, a bit of, uh, you know, just again, I, I can't describe it because I've never been alone with that kind of crew I'd see at night. But like, um, he was, I think, having something of, maybe not as profound as the overview effect, but you can see the same, the similarities, yeah. right? Like the sense of, of, um, and it got, earlier we were talking about how you got to leave home to, to find out, to go back and see where you're at, right? Like you see your hometown for the first time. You see yourself for the first time when you're away from everything. And yeah, you know, so maybe some people, like you can tell they probably shouldn't go on that trip because they're not ready for that deconstruction that's going to happen. Because it is, it is, you know, like I've read a whole bunch of the, those quotes, right? Like you see the infinite blackness of space and you realize, oh shit. It's like, like Earth is so fragile and fleeting and beyond that is nothing and yeah. oh, it looks like nothing and for some people that's terrifying and for some people that's it it really makes you appreciate what you have and same for like like read reports of people like scuba diving that's again there's all this micro dosage of the overview effect you go scuba diving you know i remember when i went i tried to go scuba diving 
um I didn't have a great experience because I, I can't swim and I can't like I was I, I I tried to go further than I could have. But again, while it was slightly jarring, I liked it. I liked the experience. like maybe I'm weird, but I liked the experience <laughs> of um being underwater for a while with a tank. And like if the tank didn't work, I would not have been able to support myself, my life. I would have died. Right. And like I was I went out on a boat that was there's a ship crew like a captain or whatever oh, okay. and yeah. we didn't know each other personally but like my life was in his hands as we were out at sea because like if the ship capsized or something like i don't know how long it have taken like there's no phone reception you're out at sea right. and like right and i found that to be a very intimate and life-affirming experience to mm. be carried out into danger basically like, again in civilization you don't feel that sort of existential danger in that way right yeah. except by like sudden shocking like a car swerves in front of you like oh shit i almost died but you know like there's something different about that experience and yeah i think it's very meditative i think it's um again i wouldn't force anyone who doesn't want to go i think that's that's very cruel but i would um i would love to go i would love to encourage anyone who has never thought about it to think about it yeah you could even i think there's even like these vr headsets and stuff that you can wear and and watch what it might be like and yeah it's just it's a more profound, it's just one of many ways of thinking about, and this like goes all with like the first question you're asking, right? How do you situate yourself in history, in space, in time, in, in your life? And sometimes the way to do that is to just get out of your daily life and get out of your daily space. And just, so it literally goes into space, you get, to, you get to see yourself and the world from a different perspective. And I think that's very valuable. Well said, well said. And I think that's a, a perfect way to to end this uh, amazing conversation. Uh, I really want to thank you again. This has been amazing, you know, clocking in at an hour 30 or so. Uh, it's been mm-hmm. a long time coming. So thank you yeah. so much, Visa, for coming on uh, Collective Spacewalk Conversations. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Visa Khan Virasamy. He is at the forefront of building scenes, interacting through digital storytelling, and an advocate for focusing on what you want to see more of. Please pick up his amazing ebooks, Friendly Ambitious Nerds, and Introspect. Links will be in the description below. Now, before we go, please like this video if you found the discussion generative and intriguing. Leave a comment about your favorite part of the episode or who we should interview next, and subscribe for more eclectic content. And until next time, Ad Astra.